Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. Scripture tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be ye always ready to give each man or woman an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within you. And we do so with gentleness and respect. As believers, we have to be prepared to answer questions about our faith. And those questions or the way we respond ought to be based on sound doctrine and doctrines are teachings and sound. The Greek word who gaze uh, means healthy. So we as believers have to engage in healthy teachings. We wanted to continue our dialogue on the problem of evil. Uh, We ran out of time, uh, time the first uh, time around and we wanted to uh, bring our guests back to share with us and explain to us uh, biblically how we ought to deal with the problem of evil and how we should be able to articulate it. So I guess, again, for this topic is Dr. Clay Jones of Biola University. He is a professor of apologetics. Dr. Jones, how are you today? I'm very well, Perseus. Thank you for having me again. And I want to start off, I should have asked you this in our previous recording. What was the impetus or the reason uh, that moves you to study on the problem of evil? Well, that's a, that's a fairly complex question. For, anyway, I should say my answer is fairly complex. You know, really, um, I became interested, I always tell people, I think I became interested in the problem of evil exactly backwards from everybody else. Uh, when I was, many years ago in the 80s, when I was a young pastor, uh, the Lord began to reveal to me the glory that awaits us in heaven. And so I started to study the glory that awaits us forever and ever in heaven and the transformation of the Christian, that we're, we've been adopted into God's family, that we are not just, since we're adopted, we are also then inheritors of God's things, thus we inherit his kingdom, and uh, we become one with him, and so on. Uh, these These wonderful truths about the nature of the Christian and I taught on that and studied that for years, and then it occurred to me, you know, I now that I've studied where, who the Christian is and where the Christian's ultimately going, it would make sense to kind of understand where the Christian came from. And so I began to study the sinfulness of humankind before they become Christians, that we were all born uh, desperate sinners. And as I really began to study that and study that in depth, studied a lot of human evil and, and doctrines related to original sin and the transmission of Adam's sin to us, as I studied all of these very th- various things, uh, an amazing thing happened, and that was uh, the problem of evil just went away. And I realized that a lot of your listeners might go, that's crazy talk. But I think that the famous preacher of Westminster Chapel put it well, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he de- he's deceased now, but he put it well. He says, most of the Christian's troubles are due to a double failure. 
we fail on the one hand to understand the depths of our depravity, mm. and we fail on the other hand to understand the glory and the wonder that awaits us in heaven forever. And I think that's absolutely true. This is the average Christian's major failing throughout the world. They, don't, they either don't understand uh, the depths of human sinfulness, or they don't understand, most Christians, very few Christians, really have a robust view of heaven, uh, and, uh, or they don't understand either one. And and if you don't understand the depths of human sinfulness and you don't understand the glory that God's bringing us to, you just simply are not, you're just simply not going to understand the problem of evil. In fact, you're going to have a hard time just understanding what God's doing in general in the universe. Thank you for that. My second question, um, since this is continuation of the first episode, can you unpackage for us again how we are defining evil? Well, evil's divided into two major topics, uh, moral evil, and of course moral evil is everything from slander and drunk driving and uh, rape and murder and, and uh, embezzlement, etc. I mean, obviously those are examples of moral evil. And then we also talk about natural evils, uh, sufferings, for instance. And natural evils can include everything from mold, like a moldy peach, that's a, that would be considered sort of a natural evil. To a cancer, uh, death, of course, by natural causes is a natural evil. And so, you know, all of the sickness and, and uh, different kinds of corruptions that we find on this earth, earthquakes, tsunamis, and so on, those are all examples of natural evils. And so when you put it all together, um, uh, you know, I mean, th- those are the two kinds. I think all the natural evils uh, are the result of of uh, moral evil, uh, and by that, in particular, I'm thinking of Adam and Eve's sin. That when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, God warned them that if they sinned, that he would uh, then that they would die. And when they sinned, he then cursed the ground, which I always suggest opens up every kind of possible evil, he cursed right. the ground, enabling every kind of uh, natural evil, and then he removed them from the Garden of Eden, which also removed them from from the rejuvenating power of the Tree of Life, and so we've been attending uh, funerals ever since. So those <laughs> are the two types, and I think natural evil is the result of, like I say, moral evil. As I thought more about our discussion a few weeks ago, I was thinking about um, a dialogue or the introduction into the problem of evil when I was in seminary. And the way it was presented was uh, that God created the good, as we find in Genesis. Uh, He created us, and he said it was good. Uh, But then as sin entered, uh, and and you talked about it last time, uh, it's it's intertwined with the will of of humanity. But when sin entered, um, it... It, it, it corrupted the good. So I guess my question to you then is, how can man be uh, ontologically good, but yet morally evil? Well, uh, humankind was created ontologically good. Uh, Adam and Eve were, well, we usually say they were innocent. They were innocent of any sin, but they certainly didn't have any corruption or sin nature. But once Adam and Eve sinned, uh, they then were no longer in proper relationship with God, and then they were corrupted and under the power of the devil. And so humankind now, 
the the average human is not by any stretch of the means uh stre- any way stretch uh, or stretch of the imagination uh it, it is not ontologically good. We were not born. No one was born ontologically good. We were all born uh, corrupted because of Adam and Eve. And my contention is is that we humankind is indeed very corrupt, extremely corrupt. Uh, and we talked a little last time about the fact that every holoc- uh, every genocide researcher that I've ever read, and I've read a lot of them, every single one of them to a person says that it's the average people average members of a population that commit genocide. In other words, there's no, there's nothing special about a culture that decides to just do wholesale slaughter of another culture. This is just simply what humans do. And every researcher has come to that conclusion. And uh, like Christopher Browning, I think I might have mentioned this last mm-hmm. time, but Christopher Browning, who wrote the book that I assign, Ordinary Men, Police Battalion 101, and the Final Solution in Poland, his conclusion was, I could have been the killer or the evader. Both were human. And a psychologist, her- sociologist Harold Welzer said, we're left then with the most discomforting of all realities, ordinary, normal people committing acts of extraordinary evil. This reality is difficult to admit, to understand, to absorb. As we look at the perpetrators of genocide and mass killing, we no longer need to ask who these people are. We know who they are. They are you and I. Mm. That, this is, that this is, unfortunately, humans murder each other very, very, very easily. And this just isn't something that, you know, frankly, as even Ellie Wiesel, uh, even the victims of uh, genocide say this, Ellie Wiesel, who's the most famous survivor of Auschwitz, he put it deep down, man is not only an executioner, not only a victim, not only a spectator, he's all three at once. Mm. See, I mean, even the victims of genocide go, huh, this is what humans do. In other words, you would think the victims would go, no, there's some really bad people out there. But that's not the conclusion that even the victims of genocide walk away with. The victims, even the victims of genocide walk away and go, this is what humans do. This is just a very human thing to do. Well, there's something, but see, this fits exactly in with Mm -hmm. Romans Mm 3.10. There is no one who does good, not even one. (laughs) See, I mean, this, in other words, what we find, researchers and even victims of genocide actually end up affirming Scripture Mm. uh, that their people aren't good. And Romans 3 goes on to say their mouths are full of cursing, and then it says their feet are swift to shed blood. This is human nature. This is the ontological uh, basis of all humans. Now, you and I, and hopefully most of your listeners, or at least many of them, have been born again, so you right. need to be in a new family. Right. So really now we're just getting down to the gospel, aren't right. we? Uh, you need to join a new family. You need to be changed from the heart. Paul says, you know, you become obedient from the heart, that, you know, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, and you're no longer dead in sin, but are alive in God, that he actually changes your nature so that the Christian is not depraved. Right. And I I appreciate that, because what you just shared is is in concert with what Paul writes about, which is, with the first Adam, we all died and fell. You bet. Where the last Adam, we all live and are quickened. Right. Thank you so much. That's excellent. Now, my next question uh, is regarding evil itself. Are all 
sins evil? And if no, is there a higher degree of sin? And uh, I think about even the passage in Genesis uh, 39 and 9, specifically dealing with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And there's a, uh, in verse 9, uh, Joseph basically equates the offer by Potiphar's wife to him sinning against God. And, and he responded by saying, how then can I do this great wickedness? Yeah. So he didn't just say, uh, uh, do this sin or, or commit this transgression. He labeled a great wickedness. So is there a degree of sin in terms well, of evil? All sin, all sin and evil are synonyms. I mean, basically, all sins are evil. Uh, but but I agree with you, uh, or I, I don't know actually if you were uh, taking that position, but no, not all sins are equal. That's just simply not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus said about Judas, he says, uh, that the one who betrayed me has the greater, to Pilate, excuse me, he said to Pilate, he says, the one who betrayed me has the greater sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that this is, that there's a greater sin. Also, you, the Bible always rec- or recognizes greater and lesser commandments. You remember the guy said, you know, I mean, what's the greatest commandment? Right. And, of course, Jesus replies, love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And, love, and he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, and so, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it, obviously there's greater commandments. It's a greater sin to break greater commandments than it is to break ones that the Lord would consider lesser. In fact, the Jews, you know, rabbinical teaching, they had, uh, you know, uh, very, they would recognize, like, what was, a lesser, what was a lesser sin? And a lesser sin would be, for instance, one of them was, you know, in, old, in the Old Testament said you had to build basically kind of a wall around your roof area so people wouldn't fall off. Uh, that that not building that wall uh, was a lesser sin, and also there's the law of the bird nest in the Old Testament. You know that, uh, that there were certain regulations that on the way you were supposed to take eggs and and birds and and such. Uh, that those are not as great a sin as let's say murder one <laughs> or <laughs> adultery. You know, I mean. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, there's greater and lesser sins. That's a lot of most Christians don't think that. But it's just not true. But don't you think um, informally or subconsciously in this society that we call America, when we use the term evil, many people equate it with the most egregious form of sin as we classify it? But that's our problem. I mean, what I mean by that is, see, what we've done in, in our society is we think a little bit of lust after a person you're not married to is not that big a deal. Right. Uh, and so we don't really take that very seriously. And seeing people basically to get, you know, I mean, to be blunt, in, in movies where people are getting naked and on top of each other, and we're, we're kind of sitting there and going, oh, well, I'm not doing it. And we're going, well, see, I'm not, I'm not really guilty of any serious sin here. The trouble is, is what people don't realize is that a little sin leads to a lot of sin. Right. And a lot of and a lot of men and women, frankly, are allowing little bits of lust, and it does it doesn't have to just be after people. I always say you can lust after people, possessions, positions, or pleasures, you know. But you allow a little bit of lust in, and you let that keep going and going and going, and pretty soon you're going to have a lot of lust. And if you're just a little allowing lots and lots of little bits of lust, the, the 
Scripture, as Jesus said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, that in time you're going to want, you know, if you're watching a little bit of pornography here and a little bit of pornography there, pretty soon you're going to want to commit adultery. Right. And so, but yeah, people have a tendency to dismiss it. They go, well, if I'm not committing adultery, you know, it's not that big a deal as long as, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm lusting, but I'm not committing adultery. But, you know, maybe this would help your listener. I always ask, you know, I always ask my students, why do bang, gangbangers stop at red lights? And they'll kind of hem and haw for a minute, and then one of them finally will say something like, well, because they don't want to get a ticket. And I'll go, well, yeah, that's one reason maybe, but isn't there a bigger reason that gangbangers stop at red lights? Uh, isn't the real reason that they don't want to get hit by a truck and become red <laughs> asphalt? Uh, that's the real reason. In other words, the re- it's not because gangbangers have decided, hey, we're going to, re- I don't respect any other law, but I respect red light laws. That's not it. But now take a, a man and a woman, and I don't th- stop me if I don't think we talked about this last week, but take a man and a woman who are flirting with each other and are fantasizing about having sex with each other. Why don't they actually do it? Well, I'll tell you the reason very simply. It's not because they've decided to cherish only their spouse, because we've already established that, what, they're fantasizing about having sex with people they're not married to. Right. So it's not, so they're not, so it's not, the reason they're not having sex with each other isn't because they've decided to cherish only their spouse. Isn't it self-interest? In other words, I mean, uh, they're a, they realize, hey, I don't want to get pregnant. I don't want to get a disease. That would be hard to explain to my spouse. Uh, her husband might kill me. I'd right. lose my reputation. But notice that the motives for not doing it, assuming the other person really is available, mm-hmm. the motives for not doing it then are all self-interest. Right. And and same thing with murder. John says in First John, he who hates his brother is a murderer. So the question is, if you hate someone's guts, why don't you murder them? Well, it's not because you're... You, don't, you care for them because we've already established that you hate them. Well, why don't you actually murder them? Isn't it against self-interest? I look at the, some of these TV shows where it shows people and guys in prison. I go, wow, I'm not big enough to be there. I'd be, I'd be beat up pretty fast in the prison population. I couldn't work out enough to be as big as those guys are. <laughs> uh, but see, the motive then... For not, if you hate, the reason you hate but you don't kill, we go, well, it's not a big deal because I'm not actually killing. The trouble, the reason you're not a murderer, though, is out of self-interest. If you're fantasizing sexually out of, about having sex with somebody, but you don't do it, it's not because of moral goodness that you're not doing it. It's either because the other person isn't really available or because of self-interest. You're going, man, I, man who knows what disease I'm going to bring home. It would be hard to explain to my spouse. Uh, you know, pregnancy, you know, I mean, where is this going to go? I mean, I'm going to lose my reputation, my family. Am I going to end up, you know, and on. But see, again, I can't emphasize this enough. This is why Jesus is saying he looks at a woman has committed adultery, lustfully has committed adultery in his heart, because we need to point out to people that the real evil is all about the heart. Right. Right. I appreciate that. And my last question, we have a couple of minutes left, is can you touch on God's cure for evil. Well, you know, I mean, of course, and, and I'm, God's cure for evil is Jesus. Uh, <laughs> one, I mean, you need people, when it comes to the cure for their evil hearts, we need to come to Jesus and be born again. Repent of our sins and become born again, become new creatures. But the ultimate cure, answer to all evil is God's coming back. Right. He's going to fix it. Heaven comes. The Lord comes. 
And people need to take that very seriously. This right. is all going to be resolved. All right. of it is going to be resolved. And so it's not, you know, people say, well, why does God allow evil? Well, he's going to stop all evil. That's the plan. Right. But right now, he's allowing us free beings, and we can talk a lot about free will if we had the time, but he's allowing us, because free will is valuable, he's allowing us to learn what it's like mm. when we go, you know what, I think I know how better to run my life than he does, and so then these free beings go off and start doing their own thing. And he just steps back and goes, okay, knock yourselves out. But he's going to fix that one day. <laughs> Praise God. I do appreciate you making yourself available to continue this um, subject on evil, and you unpackage it in a way that we could understand. So, Dr. Jones, thank you so much again uh, for sharing with us, and we will be in touch. I'm pleasure to talk to you again, Perseus. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That was Dr. Clay Jones of Biola University. He is uh, one of the professors in apologetics and that was our continuation on the subject matter, the problem of evil. And evil, as I stated earlier, is a corruption of the good. Uh, even though God created us ontologically good, due to sin and the fallen state, we now have a moral uh, defect, uh, as Romans 3.10 infers or, or talks about, uh, as is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. So even the little baby, as cute as he or she may be, they have um, a defect within them. It's called a uh, sin nature. And the only way that can be absolved is through uh, Jesus Christ. As they get older, uh, they can uh, accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if they're not of age, the Lord will um, receive them based on uh, where they are and, and their cap capacity to choose from right and wrong. And as always, we thank you for listening to Sound Reasoning, and we are looking for a great year in 2015, and we praise that you consider becoming a financial sponsor of the show as we move forward to uh, train, educate, and empower Christians in sound doctrine. So please don't hesitate to email us or to even visit us on Facebook. Uh, we look forward to hearing your questions, and we look forward to answering them as best as we can based on Scripture. So please consider becoming a financial sponsor as we move forward to spread the teaching of sound doctrine, not just nationally, but globally. And remember, do for the truth what others uh, claim uh, to do for lies. We are grateful that you listen to us, and we thank God for your prayers. In Jesus' name, we do ask these blessings upon everybody. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org.
Hello, my name is Adam Comer. And I'm Ryan Chittister. And we're the host of Life After Addiction Podcast. If you or someone you love struggles with addiction, check us out, Life After Addiction Podcast, and you can subscribe at lifeaudio.com.